0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycency.org. And this morning we come to Simeon's song. And so let me read to you just again, we heard it a little bit earlier, but from Luke chapter 2, I'll just read the song itself, starting with verse 28. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, it's page 857 if you're using one of the Bibles in your rows. Luke chapter 2, verse 28, he, that is Simeon, took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord God, would you this morning give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe your word that you have for us. Now help us to, to see and to know Jesus above all things. Speak to us, we ask. We need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you know what these are, right? These are uh, 3D glasses. And, uh, right, you, 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 you know what these are for, right? You put these on during a presentation or a, a special movie or a television show, and when you're wearing the 3D glasses, right, you see something that you would not be able to see without them, right? I remember exactly when my first experience with 3D glasses was. It was February 1989, Super Bowl XXIII, Bengals, 49ers, some of you are still traumatized by the end of that game, I know I am, but seventh grade for me, I was excited for the game, but I was also really excited for the halftime show. The title of the show was Bebop Bamboozled, uh, totally on brand for the 1980s, and by the way, if you Google weirdest halftime show ever, this is what comes up. Bebop bamboozle. Part of the show was supposed to be in 3D, so my friends and I, we were glued to the screen at the halftime of the game waiting for those all-important words, take out your 3D glasses, and then it was time. We were supposed to take out our glasses, only I had forgotten mine. In my locker at school, and so I had to sit through the halftime show with my friends ooing and awing on either side of me. I think they were actually playing it up because they knew I was jealous. Also, because they were jerks, uh, but I couldn't see right. I, I was missing things by not having the appropriate lens. I missed out. I couldn't see what they were seeing, and that's true with more than just 3D glasses, right? My Underlying theme, as we're talking about this passage this morning, is that the lens through which you look at the world dramatically affects what you see. The perspective, the framework uh, that you use to look at everything affects both what you see and how you see it. We even have expressions for this, right? We talk about people being, you know, somebody who sees the world uh, glass half empty, right? Or through rose-colored glasses. And the question for you to ponder maybe this morning is, what is the framework that you use to look at the world? What colors what you see and how you see it? Simeon had a lens through which he looked at the world, and it enabled him to see something that other people missed. He had a perspective on life, a perspective on God, on the future that allowed him to see this child come into the world at the first Christmas and say, in verse 30, "'My eyes have seen your salvation.'" So let's think about this this morning. Let's begin here by setting the scene. In verse 21, we learn that Mary and Joseph have the baby Jesus at eight days old in accordance with Old Testament practice. They name him and they have him circumcised. And then in verse 22, it says they head off to Jerusalem. Now they go to Jerusalem for two reasons. First, they go, it says, for the purpose of purification. You see that in verse 22, right? When it came time for their purification. Now, what is that all about? Be brief with this, but according to the Israelite clean laws, after the birth of a child, after 40 days, the mother would go and offer a sacrifice at the temple, and that was for purification. Blood made you ritually unclean, and so this was an offering to make you ceremonially clean. Now, the second thing that they were there to do in Jerusalem was to present, it says, present Jesus to the Lord. Now, again, this is part of the law of Moses. Firstborn male children were consecrated. They were set apart to serve God in the temple throughout their lives. But what would actually happen in practice is that the tribe of the Levites would serve in place of the firstborn males in Israel. So it's a kind of a theme of substitution there. But even if your child was not a Levite, you would bring him to the temple, you would acknowledge that the Levites would take his place, and then you would redeem the boy back by paying 5 silver shekels, which then would support the work of the ministry in the temple. So that's why they had come to Jerusalem, and that's where they run into Simeon. Now, we don't know much about Simeon. He's not mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Most think that he was a priest, but that's really kind of a guess based on the fact that he was just sort of hanging around the temple. Most of the artists paint him as an old man, like Rembrandt does here in the image you see. Though we don't really know that either. The idea is based mainly on the fact that he sees this boy Jesus and, and he says, now I can die. Most people postulate then he must be old. But we do know a few things about Simeon, all really from verse 25. Luke tells us first that he was righteous. and Most often in the Bible, that word is used as what you might call kind of a horizontal uh, or relational word. It focuses on uh, conduct with other people or between people. So Simeon's life, we're told, is characterized by fairness and compassion. He loved his neighbor well. He was righteous. But then secondly, Luke calls him devout. Now that if the first one is a, a horizontal or relational word, this is, you might call a vertical word. It has to do with his relationship to God. Simeon worshiped God. He was devoted to following God. He was seeking to bring his life in line with God's word. And thirdly, we're told that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And you know what it means to console someone, right? To comfort somebody who's grieving or somebody who's suffering. The rabbis talked about the woes of the Messiah, the expectation that God would one day send his Messiah to console Israel of her sufferings or her woes in the world. And In Simeon's day, there were a lot of woes, a lot of need to be consoled. They had lost their political independence to Roman occupiers. They were feeling the cruelty of King Herod. So there was a lot to console. And Simeon is looking forward to this. He's convinced that God is going to come, and God is going to fulfill his promises to deliver the people of Israel. God had promised there would be a Messiah, a deliverer, and Simeon is waiting Luke says one more thing about Simeon. It says uh, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And Don't overlook that part. Because as good of a guy as Simeon is, this is the difference maker. The Holy Spirit was upon him. In fact, that's the basis for all the other things we just said about him. Simeon, like every other person, was contaminated by sin. Romans chapter 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the Spirit had come on Simeon, and the Spirit is the source of his hope, what gave him strength to wait for the consolation of Israel. It says explicitly in verse 26, it was the Spirit. It was the Spirit that moved him to lead him to worship, to be righteous in his dealings with other people, and it was the Holy Spirit that led him to the temple that day, verse 27, so that he could encounter Jesus. And I just wonder, you know, do you have a sense that maybe the Holy Spirit is moving in your life. Some of you here this morning, no doubt, are investigating Christianity, and maybe you sense somehow, maybe this is even while you're in the room this morning, and God is tugging at your heart. And if that's true for you, that's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who comes and, and changes our hearts, the Spirit is the one who leads us to Jesus. And if you're sensing that this morning, then let me encourage you to lean into it, to lean into the Spirit's work, to yield your life to Him. And if you already are a Christian, I want to remind you, too, that God's Spirit lives inside you. And there's so much we could say about that, but remember, it's the Holy Spirit that applies God's work, or God's word, rather, to your heart. It's the Holy Spirit that unites you to other Christians. In fact, if you can find common ground with the people around you, people who you might not have anything else in common with, it's because the Holy Spirit is in you and the Holy Spirit is in them. It's the Holy Spirit that helps you pray when you don't know what to pray for. It's the Holy Spirit that takes you from just knowing about God to experiencing God or to knowing God personally, relationally. All right, so it, it, the Holy Spirit leads Simeon, we're told, into the temple. He sees the baby Jesus. He takes him in his arms. He blesses him, and then he sings what's often called the nunc dimittis for the Latin, nunc dimittis tuum. Now let your servant depart. In other words, he's saying, now I can die. I remember listening, I think it was an NPR story I was listening to after the uh, Boston Red Sox won the World Series back in 2004. This was, the, they've won since then, but first one in a long time. Remember, they hadn't won the World Series uh, since the curse of the Bambino, right? They traded Babe Ruth away 1918 took 86 years for them to win their next World Series. And so for this story, the next morning after the World Series championship came back to Boston, they were interviewing older men, men in their 70s and 80s in Boston about this. And they were all overcome emotionally. These men were in tears. And they were saying, the curse is broken. Now I can die. That's in a much grander way. This is what Simeon is singing about here. He's saying, now, finally, I can depart in peace. I've seen what I need to see. The curse is broken. It's rolled back. Like the the words from joy to the world, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Simeon's saying, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. Now I can die. And this is a hope, not just for the consolation of Israel, but actually he has a hope for the whole world. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, this is great stuff, but just notice it's not exactly self-evident, is it? I mean, Simeon is saying all these things. Don't forget about a seven-week-old baby, a poopy, needy, crying, weak, perhaps colicky baby, right? Not everybody sees this. Not everybody looks at Jesus and sees what Simeon sees. Not everybody looks at this child and saw the Savior of the world. Not everybody experienced that first Christmas in the way that Simeon did. And not everybody is going to see things the same way this Christmas either. see, Simeon had inside information, we might say, and it changed the way that he saw everything. He had the glasses. He had the perspective that enabled him to see something that others just couldn't see. And we're told that Christians too, even today, have some inside information. If you put on the glasses of the Holy Scriptures, it's going to affect the way that you see things, the way that you see things in your own life, the way that you see things going on in the world. And so with the time that we have left this morning, let me just ask a few questions about seeing well what would you see differently if you put on the lens of faith so the first question is this what should you be looking for there's a and you've heard me tell this before if you've been around for a while but there's a story about a i think a third grade Sunday school class And uh, the teacher, I don't know if it's a he or she, uh, male or female teacher, but they're trying to get the kids talking, and so the teacher asks uh, some questions, you know, kind of trying to lob some softball questions to the kids to to get them engaged and discussing. And so the teacher says, what kind of animal, children, has a tail and stores up acorns for the winter? One little boy raises his hand and says, uh, you know, normally I'd say squirrel, but we're in church, so I'm going to go with Jesus. Now, we can over-spiritualize things, right, to the point of absurdity. Squirrel was a good answer in that case. But here, we're talking about questions of ultimacy, right? We're talking about what is life about? Why am I here? How can the world be made right? What will really satisfy me in the deepest parts of my soul? Where should I put my hope, my trust? And the answer really is, Jesus. And that's not over-spiritualizing in this case. Simeon was waiting for Jesus. He was looking for God's Messiah, for God's deliverer, for the Savior, the light of the world, the consolation of Israel, the King of kings. He was looking for Jesus and hoping in his coming. And maybe this sounds simple, but I think it's worth mentioning here because we're tempted all the time to look for other things. Right, to pursue things other than Jesus. We pursue power, maybe in the form of a promotion perhaps. We pursue security in our financial wealth or maybe even security relationally in a relationship with someone else. Uh, we pursue status in the form of the car that we drive or the neighborhood we live in or the clothes that we wear or the Instagrammable vacations that we take or comfort distancing ourselves from the needs and the problems of others. Simeon, like us, could have looked elsewhere, but he had insider information. He knew that the only hope for Israel, the only means of salvation for the world would be the coming of a deliverer sent by God. And then the Holy Spirit leads Simeon to Jesus. And so take that to heart this morning, especially with Christmas right around the corner. What are you looking for? What are you looking for this year? This text reminds us we need to look for Jesus. How can he invade your life in a fresh way this year? But then secondly, a question, where do you look? And there's a couple of different ways to answer that question. But first, we're called to look forward. Advent as a whole is a a season designed to prepare us for the coming of Christ, not only to celebrate his first coming, but to point us toward the fact that one day he's going to come again. Simeon spent his life looking forward to the coming consolation of Israel, and we're called to that same kind of forward-looking. We're to look forward to the day when Jesus will come again and make all things new and complete the work of bringing light into a dark world. We should be eager for his coming. The second to last verse of the Bible, Jesus says, I am coming soon, and the Apostle John, this is Revelation 22.20, John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that your cry? It ought to be. Come, Lord Jesus. Make all things right. Make all things new. Wipe away every tear. Put down evil. Get rid of disease. Restore the brokenhearted. I can be um, a bit of an introvert, especially on those uh, days where uh, my job involves a lot of meetings, and so sometimes when I come home, I don't have a whole lot of relational energy, and I'm... uh, Sort of wondering how I'm going to manage, you know, the the energy of the children when I get there. But even in those days, there's one thing that still sort of, you know, always perks me up and makes me smile. It's when the kids sort of drop whatever they're doing and sort of come tearing out to see me, you know, uh, "Daddy, Daddy's home!" You know that kind of thing. My seven-year-old does this with great amounts of enthusiasm, often into the driveway and even sometimes down to the corner of the street when he knows I'm on my Way home. The 11 year old, she's a little more playing it cool, you know, trying to be sophisticated and a little aloof. But even she, right, can still do this kind of thing drop everything in daddy's home. Well, I was thinking about that this week, right, that this ought to be my attitude toward Jesus coming. It should be our attitude toward the thought of Jesus' return. There's a principle, in other words, of non attachment to the things of the world that we ought to be cultivating in our hearts so that we can drop everything. And go running to Jesus when he returns. The more we're consumed with things here, the less likely we will be to look for the coming of the king and to his kingdom. So we look forward, longing for Christ's return. But we also look for the work of Christ and his kingdom in the present, in the world right now. We've been saying throughout this series that it's important to come to grips with the fact that we live in a dark and broken world. But that's not all this world is. It is dark. It is broken. That's not all it is. The world is also in the process of being redeemed. Christmas reminds us that God is not an absentee landlord. He has stepped down into the darkness. He has come to bring his light into the world. That's why, by the way, when Jesus kicks off his preaching, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Some translations say the kingdom of God is among you. It's here, it's now, it's in a very real fashion, come, but not complete, not fully realized. But God has broken into the world, and the kingdom is here nonetheless. It's a little bit like living between D-Day and V-Day. You know what I'm talking about? World War II. Perhaps you know that the decisive victory for the allies in World War II was D-Day, June 6, 1944, the invasion of, of Normandy. But for all intents and purposes, then the war in the European theater was over, right? It was won at that point. But almost a year goes by before Germany officially surrendered. The war was won. There's still skirmishes, there were still battles in between. We live in a time, the Bible would tell us, very much like D Day and V-Day, a time between. Christ has come. The kingdom is broken in, but there's still battles to be fought. There's skirmishes. There's setbacks. There's real pain. There's real suffering. There's real difficulty, but the outcome is not in doubt, and so we can be fundamentally hopeful. The world belongs to him. The kingdom is advancing, and part of our job in this time between D-Day and V-Day is to announce the victory. Christ has come. Light has dawned. Evil will not prevail. And if you'd repent and turn to him, you can join in this victory. and Be part of the celebration. And so we're waiting for the kingdom, but there's a nowness, a present sense to this as well. It's among us. The kingdom has broken in on that first Christmas. The last question, how do we look? Not like, how do I look? But... In what way do we look for Christ and for his kingdom? How do we see like Simeon did? First, we need to look with the eyes of faith. Remember the 3D glasses, right? The lens through which you look at the world ultimately will determine what you see. And Simeon looked at the world with the eyes of faith, the lens of faith, the spectacles of faith. He was righteous, he was devout, he waited for God, he's full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit then leads him to Jesus and then the Spirit reveals that Jesus will be the consolation of Israel. We too, right, as Christians, have had things revealed to us. Like Simeon, we have access to information. You can open the Bible and you can read about God's plan for the world. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the rows you can take those home with you. And you can read about what he's made the world to be, what's gone wrong with it, how he plans to make it right again. You can read about Jesus, about how his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension ultimately brings this about, the promise of his return. And as you read those things, you can lean on the Holy Spirit and ask him to help you make sense of it all. You can ask the Holy Spirit to make the biblical lens your lens through which you look at the world, so that when you do see things in the world, you begin to see with the eyes of faith. And so we look with the eyes of faith. But to do that, you need to be intentional. And listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, We may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito, that is, disguised, But the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend. In fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. Remember, attend, come awake, stay awake. This takes intentionality, or to put it another way, it's something you have to do on purpose. You need to look at the world expecting that God is there, that God is at work, expecting that the world is crowded with him. We ought to be thinking or journaling or however you do it, rehearsing to yourself the question, where did I see God today? You ought to be asking if you have children in your house, what's something good or noble or beautiful that you saw today, and how do you think God might have been behind that? We used to, when we took mission trips with students, would often ask folks at the end of the day to, to, as we're sharing, to take a little mental snapshot You know, and think, what do you want to remember? What was something that you saw God involved in or doing or something you want to remember cling to? That's looking with intention. And we all ought to be doing it. The world is crowded with him, but we have to have eyes to see. Thirdly, lastly, we look for Christ and his kingdom soberly. Not somberly, but soberly, meaning we look for the light of the kingdom knowing that the darkness can be pretty thick down in verse 33 in our text this morning. It says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You know, Christmas really is about goodwill on earth and peace toward men, but That doesn't mean there won't be conflict and even division. The child is appointed for the falling and the rising of many. Some will rise because they will run to Jesus for healing and redemption, but others will fall. They will stumble over Jesus. Some opposed him, we know, in his life. They rejected him. They nailed him to a cross. And still today, some will trip over him and the good news of the gospel. And that conflict, though, it's not just between people, but sometimes it's even within people. Mary was told, a sword will pierce through your own soul. Following Jesus may actually make life, in some sense, more difficult for you. It might mean more pain in some ways as he calls you into difficult things, foregoing pleasures that others may enjoy, choosing service over comfort in the mission of God. You'll think about the needs of others more than your own. You'll mourn over your sin when others may be tempted just to laugh it off. As we finish out here, let me just close with a story. You know, C.S. Lewis has a a passage in his book, The Magician's Nephew. And uh, in the passage, uh, by the way, Magician's Nephew is is the uh, creation story, as it were, of of the Narnia Chronicles. And uh, in the passage I'm going to read to you, Aslan, the Christ figure, And the story is singing Narnia into existence, and the children are there, and there's a cab driver who's made his way into Narnia from London. He's there, but Uncle Andrew doesn't have the frame of reference. He doesn't see what the others are seeing. Let me just read to you what it says. We must now go back a bit and explain what the whole scene had looked like from Uncle Andrew's point of view. It had not made at all the same impression on him as on the cabbie and the children, for what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you're standing. It also depends on what kind of person you are. Ever since the animals had first appeared, Uncle Andrew had been shrinking further and further back into the thicket. He watched them very hard, of course, but he wasn't really interested in seeing what they were doing, only in seeing whether they were going to make a run at him. Like the witch, he was dreadfully practical. He simply did not notice that Aslan was choosing one pair out of every kind of beasts. All he saw was or thought he saw, was a lot of dangerous wild animals walking vaguely about, and he kept on wondering why the other animals didn't run away from the big lion. When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing long ago while it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then, when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing, and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in our world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could not hear anything but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that very often you succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing It also depends on what sort of person you are. In our story, Simeon saw well. What kind of person was he? He was righteous. He was devout. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And where was he standing? He was standing on the promises of God. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And may it be so with us this Christmas. Let's pray together. And then we're going to sing a song, a version of Simeon's song, before we come to the table. Lord, we ask that you would make us like Simeon, waiting, hoping for the consolation, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Would you help us to see Jesus amidst all the other things that can vie for our attention this Christmas? Would you give us eyes to see Jesus? Help us to come awake, to stay awake to his presence in the world, his presence even in our own lives. And would you do that for us even now as we continue to worship and as we come together to the Lord's Supper? It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycency.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.